as you're praying and as you're quiet, I want you to think about this. Why do, why do you love people? Why, why do you love the people in your life? Why do you love them? How do you love them? Just sit with that for a moment. Why do you love people? How do you love people? Father, there's an old liturgy that says we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. I pray that as we open up your word and as we reflect on what it means to love others, God, that you would give us a motivation for that that transcends what we can get out of people, that transcends even our attachment to them, that is much deeper than whether or not they fail us. God, we pray that our motivation for loving others might be yours. The same one that you have as you love. Would you show us where our attitudes and our actions and our motivations might, where we might need confession this morning. Where we might need healing this morning. Where we thought it was a trap and we just didn't see the trap for what it actually was. Show us a way forward, God. Into the love that you have for us and into the love we might give to other people. It's in Jesus' good name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so where do we get a solid, transcendent motivation for loving the people around us? Because people are going to make mistakes, right? They're going to fail. Just like us. Well, it turns out that for us, we can go all the way back to the genesis of humans in the book of Genesis to find something that, if you let it, can transform the way that you look at the beings around you. We're going to be in Genesis briefly and then in John today. If you want to follow along on the screen or in an app that you have on your phone, you're welcome to do that. But, but before that, how do you look at the human beings around you? I want you to think about the people that you live with and the people that you work with and the people that you pass by. How, how do you look at those people? Are they annoying, inconvenient hurdles to your day? Are they a disappointment to you? Are they an obstacle to your happiness? Now you might hear those questions and go, no. No, I don't look at people that way. Well, maybe here's a different set of questions. Are other people a vehicle for your happiness that you are dependent on? That you are addicted to in one way or another? Do the humans that you live with and work with and play with and in relationship with, do those humans define who you are? I am their father. I am their spouse. I am their sister. I am their daughter. I am their lover. I am their friend. I am their... Do the people around you, do you look at them as a way of defining you? Is that how you regard the people around you? 
your interior landscape, your thoughts and your motivations, your emotions. All of these questions could be asked about the people that you live with and the people that you work with or you work for, about the people in your social network, the humans that you interact with online, or all of your enemies. Let's think on this deeply and reflectively. How do we see? How do we relate to? How do we judge? How do we interact with the humans around us? We don't even make it out of the first chapter of the first book of the Bible without a framework to build all of our human relationships on. Without a deep, meaningful description of all of the consciousnesses that are sitting around you. Let's look at it in Genesis 1. It says this, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea, and the birds in the sky, and over the livestock, and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. We've talked about this passage before, but let us make mankind in our image. It bears repeating that this is one of several, but very few instances in the Old Testament where God refers to himself as a we. And that blows our minds. And commentators for thousands of years have looked at that and said, well, God's just talking about like the royal we. You know, like how kings used to talk. Like, we are going to the bathroom now. And we are having a festival, and we this and we that. Here's the problem with that. That doesn't happen any, really, all, at all in this text, in the Old Testament. But it happens here. So something about God making humans in his image means that we are the we-ness of God. The we of God is reflected in humanity. That's profound. Let that sink in. Look at verse 27. So he created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, there's so much here that we're not going to touch. But I want you to think about the people that you know and you love. I want you to think about the people that you struggle with in relationship. I want you to think about the people that you hate, if there's anyone that comes to mind. The people that you don't care for. The people that you don't associate with. The young, the old, all the colors, all the minds and all the hearts. Every culture and country and creed and race and religion. All of it. Every single person that you've ever known, ever was known, ever will be known. All people made in the image of God. No caveat in Genesis. No caveat. None. All the categories I said and every other category you could imagine. All people are made in the image of God. There's no hedging. There's no rush to any other distinction or any other judgment. We are made in God's image. This is one of the most important teachings that we could understand with all of our mind and our heart and our soul and our strength. If... You address each soul, each consciousness you interact with, whether it is your kids or your coworkers or your spouse or your parents or your friends or your enemies, every single person with the posture that somehow, some way, there in front of you, in front of us, is an image of God. I want you to just think about that for a second. If I address people that way, how am I going to talk to that person? 
If every consciousness around me is an image of God, how am I going to relate to that person? How am I going to treat that person? How am I going to engage with that person? I want you to just sit with that for for a moment. If I address the humans around me as images of God, no caveat, no hedging, no distinction, no rush to any other judgment, how is that going to impact my relationships? And if we're going to love God and love people and serve the city, if we're going to love people, when I see people, I need to see you as an image of God. I need to see you in that space, in that understanding, that when I'm looking at you, I mean you, the people I'm looking at right now, I'm seeing an image of who God is. That is a beautiful and profound thing if we let it be as we address people. I don't know about you, but some of you might be thinking, what about the rules? (laughs) What about the rules? What about the distinctions? And what about the judgments? And how do we get people to... uh, uh, uh." I mean, can you go down that road, even as you hear me talk about all humans made in the image of God? I can. In the back of my mind, I've got that twittering, that, that chatting in my head. What about the rules? What about the distinctions? What about sin? What about the brokenness? What about, what about, what about, what about? Well, let's turn to the New Testament. And let's turn to our Savior and our brother and our friend, Jesus. And let's see what he has to say about this. How we might love people and how important it might be to love people. Look at Mark 12, verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Jesus is debating with a bunch of religious people. Because that's what you do with religious people, right? Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked them, of all the commandments, which is the most important? So I want you to think about this. I want you to think about what it's like for Jesus to be interacting with people and for them to come and to want to argue with him. Want to debate with him the law and the commandments and the prophets and the prophecies and all of it. And they want to come at him and they want to get him, they want to trap him. Trap him in some sort of answer where he can get got. And Jesus is the great springer of all traps. He's fantastic at it. But I want you to think about, before we move to his answer, how and why would this question be asked? So if I'm coming to Jesus and I'm saying, what's most important? What is the thing behind the thing behind the thing behind the thing? If I'm going to build my life on something, what should I build my life on? And I want you to think of the reasons why a religious person asked that. The reason why a religious person asked that if you're religious like me, is to prove yourself. To prove that I've checked the boxes and I've crossed the T's and I've dotted the I's and and that I'm, I'm good enough or that I've done the thing enough to be enough. That's why. Look at verse 29. The most important one answered Jesus is this, and we've heard this just last week. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is uno. Let us make man in our image. The Lord is one. I I mean, see last week for a conversation on that. But hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And Jesus adds here with all your mind and with all your strength. 
The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Jesus says, if you want to know what it's all about, there's not some complicated scheme. There's not some religious path that's filled with all of this complicated rule following. There's not, it's, it, it all comes down to just this. Love God, love people. Love God, love people. There is no commandment, he says, greater than these. Essentially, Jesus distills the essence of any spiritual practice into these two things. That if you want to have some sort of relationship with God, that if you, if you want to find your worth and your identity and your love for God, you've got to express them in your relationships with people. He does this in response to people asking him how we can prove ourselves to God. As the good folks who have it really sorted out, how can we prove it? And Jesus quotes from the Old Testament, and he says, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Do you know, we may think that the go- it's the golden rule, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. Where does it come from? Love your neighbor as yourself comes from Leviticus. And it's layered in a bunch of rules that are super specific about how people would live their life. Look, look it up. Look up Leviticus and see how fun of a read that is. Um, and, and inside Leviticus, Jesus takes this one thing and he says, this is the thing. Love God, yeah. Love people. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, some people have wrestled with this. I mean, people have been wrestling with this text for thousands and thousands of years. But as you think about this text and you think about what it means to love your neighbor as yourself, what does it mean? You know, I heard, I've heard growing up that loving your neighbor as yourself means that you, like, you care for yourself and you feed yourself and you clothe yourself and you, you love yourself. But sometimes we don't love ourselves. Right? And sometimes... We, like, hate ourselves, even. So I, I was talking to someone this week, and they were talking about how, like, they wanted to love other people, and they're like, I don't... And it was really obvious that the person that was talking just didn't, like, like themselves, like, didn't love themselves, and thought that loving others, like, if I could just forget about myself, and I could just pour everything into these folks, then it would be Okay. But if you've been around for a while, you know that that doesn't work either. Right? If you've been around long enough, and if you've tried that martyrdom trip long enough, and you've gotten to the end of it, you've found that they can't give you what you're looking for. And that even if you love the best that you possibly can, and you try not to think about yourself, and you try not to think about yourself, that that ends in a trap of its own. What does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? What, what does it mean that when I see you, I see God, and I see a version of myself? And that loving God and loving people isn't about like this false sense of humility, but it's about finding that love in God and being able to express it in a way that's healthy. How do we do that? Let's, let's move on to how we do that. 
Look at John chapter 13. This will be our last text for today. So how can we love our neighbor as ourselves? And how does Jesus love his neighbor as himself? Let's look at John 13. And just to give you some context of of this passage, our last passage for today. This is Jesus' last night. This is the night that Jesus will be arrested. The day, night before he'll be crucified. And so, like, I mean, it's a dramatic night. You know, there's lots of weight put upon this night. It's the Last Supper. And look at what happens in John 13, verse 2. In the, e- the evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Now, now focus on what happens here. So the, Satan has moved Judas to do his thing, do the thing he's going to do. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. What does that mean? I mean, I want you to sit with this for just a second before we move on to this. Some of us approach Jesus and we think that he just thought about like us and that it didn't matter who he was. But I want you to see that on the night that Jesus is betrayed, this whole thing starts in motion with Jesus having a deep awareness of exactly who he is. Do you see what's happening? I want you to look at the text. Forget about what I'm smoking. I mean, I'm talking to you, so you've got to hear me. But look at the text. The text says that Jesus knew that God had put everything under his feet, in his power. That he knew that he came from God and that he was going to God. Jesus begins his passion and suffering and death knowing exactly who and what he is. Exactly who and what he is. That is a profound moment of awareness from which he lives the next part of his story. Look at this. And and the text connects it. I'm not taking something from another place and inserting it in. The text says Judas is going to betray Jesus. Judas has forgotten. He has given himself to Satan. What does that mean? It means that Judas does not know who he is anymore. Judas has lost his sense of who he is. Because Jesus had said, like, my father is your father and my God is your God. And like, you're going to be, we're going to be brothers again. And Judas had lost that sense. So that happens, and then Jesus knows who he is, and then out of that, so he got up. Because he knew who he was, he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. It isn't, and this is so important, please listen. This is our Savior, our brother Jesus. It isn't in spite of Jesus knowing that everything is under his power, that he had come from God and that he was returning to God, that he is doing this humiliating thing. It is not in spite of that. The text doesn't pit those things against each other. The text says that because he knew who he was, because he was so centered in his identity as God's son, Because he knew where he had come from. That his story didn't begin with this. And it doesn't end with this. Because of that, 
he gets up and he humbles himself and he serves. I want you to see there is no threat to Jesus' identity in this, not, none whatsoever. There is not a rejection of Jesus' identity in this. Not even Judas, not even the betrayal, not even crucifixion and death, not losing everyone that was close to him. Nothing. Nothing could move him from that place of knowing who he was and what he was. Now, it's been said many times, and if you've heard me preach this text before, you know that washing someone's feet, it's not just like pulling my boots off and my socks and I've been sweating because I've been playing guitar or whatever, so it'd be kind of nasty. Like, that'd be gross, right? It's not that kind of gross. It's like open-toed shoe, sandal, walking through camel poop gross. That's what we're talking about. That's our Savior, our brother, our friend, Jesus, putting that, hand, that foot in his hand. It's not like the paintings. Like in the paintings, there's never dirt on their feet. You know what I'm saying? And his hair is permed, and he's perfect, and he's got blue eyes for some reason. I don't understand it. But like, picture the poop. Picture the poop you hear from your pastor on Sunday morning. Hey, Zeus, picture the poop on the feet of the disciples. That's why, like, why people say that is not just to, like, like, just think for the joke. It's not a joke that Jesus was willing, out of a sense of who he is, to wash the feet of the disciples. He came to Simon Peter in verse 6, and he said to him, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Are you going to do the work of a slave? Are you going to do this humiliating, horrible, ugly, nasty thing? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later... You will understand. And then, of course, Peter, Peter's all over. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Do you see him clutching? Do you see Peter just like in a pedal bin, just, just over and over, just trying to figure out what's the corner? Like, how can I get in? Have you ever done this? Have you spent a whole life doing this? How do I get in? Like, don't wash my feet, because that seems like the, like the, you know, the, the falsely humble thing to say. You know what I mean? It's beneath you, Jesus, to wash my feet. Well, if I don't, like, if I, if I don't serve you, then we're not, we're not together. Oh, then give me a bath, Jesus. Do you see that Peter just keeps moving from thing to thing, as he's been doing for the last three years? misunderstanding every moment and just kind of, just like a puppy dog just running around because there's nothing in there. There's nothing in there. But Jesus sees through that. Look at Jesus' answer here. It's a confusing answer for me and I'll talk about why in a minute. Look at verse 10. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. There's some big, big questions about this verse. What, what do you mean by bath? Most people super spiritualize this text and say, well, he's talking about baptism. He's talking about baptism. He's saying, well, they're baptized, so their sins are forgiven, and he's just washing their feet. So it's just like, it's like sin maintenance. You know, it's like washing off your feet because you, have, you still sin and you still make mistakes, and it's not about baptism. Jesus isn't talking about any of that. I mean, maybe he is, but I don't, I don't see it here. 
Jesus is saying, because Peter keeps misunderstanding. What did Jesus even say? He said, you're not even going to understand what I'm saying to you. You can't even fathom what's happening right now. But then Jesus says, you're, you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew he was going to betray him, and that's why he said not everyone was clean. Who's the one he's talking about? I mean, obviously Judas is what we're supposed to think. But Jesus is talking to Peter. And Peter's going to betray Jesus this very night. Which one is he talking about? All of them? Because they're all going to split. And they're all going to be gone. I mean, the, the writer of the text wants us to think Judas. Because Jesus knows what Judas is going to do. And I do think Judas. But I've got I've to say that reading the text and just letting it sit... Peter's going to betray him too. Jesus, and I, it, I don't know, I, I, I guess I forgot until this week, and it reminded me again, that when Jesus kneels down and he's washing the disciples' feet, he washes Judas' feet. He washes the one who totally forgot who he was. He washes his feet, and he washes Peter's feet, and he washes all the disciples' feet. And then when he had finished washing their feet in verse 12, he put on his clothes because he had stripped down. He was half naked. And he returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. This is a good, good, good question. Because a lot of people over thousands of years have read this text and said, well, the thing that he's doing is some mystical thing. Like he's washing their sins off. Though not in the way that baptism does, because that's what he was talking about with a bath. So in the way that he was washing their feet, he's like talking about like washing their sins. And maybe that's what it means. That's not what the text says, though. Jesus tells us what it means. Look at what he says in verse 13. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Jesus isn't talking about sin in this text. Like him washing their feet, it's not about their sin. It's about serving. We want to hyper-spiritualize it to where like maybe dramatically I get a bowl and a basin and each one of you come up and I wash your feet and we all feel real weird about it. Have you ever been in part of those gatherings? I have. They're great, but super weird. Like, is Jesus talking about sin? He's actually talking about... He's saying, look, look at what he says. You call me teacher and Lord, and yeah, I am. <laughs> but now that the Lord and teacher is humiliating himself, not because he doesn't know who he is, but because he knows who he is, you can then do the same thing. You can love and you can serve, and you don't have to figure out who's in what place anymore. Because I've changed all the places. And I've reordered the whole scheme. And now we're all in God's family again because of what I'm about to do. Jesus is about to go to the cross and he's about to be crucified. He's about to be resurrected. He's about to go to my father and your father, to his God and our God. And the way that he makes here, as an example, is to become like him. And what does becoming like him look like in this text? How does loving people happen? 
Loving people happens not by forgetting who we are, a la Judas, but by knowing exactly who we are and recognizing the divine and the other people around us and treating them like that and being willing to wash the camel poop off their feet and whatever else comes out. Whatever else we can do to love and to serve. And then our last text, we're almost done. Very truly I tell you, he says, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. I want you to think about what Jesus is actually doing for his disciples here. He is saying that how you followed me as teacher and Lord, how you've followed me around and you've seen me heal folks and help folks and love folks that no one else would love. I'm not doing this so that you can just look at me doing it and say, yay, Jesus, hooray. He's like, I'm doing this so that you can do it. I'm upsetting the status quo of religion so that you can do it. I'm seeming to break religious norms so that you can do it. I'm loving people that no one wants to be around so that you can do it. I'm in places that people think I shouldn't be so that you can do it. Over and over and over again, Jesus is not saying, hey, look at me. He's really not. Though we do look at him. And he's our savior. And he made a way for us. But he made a way for us to follow him. He says, you know these things, but you'll be blessed if you do them. And here's where we come back to the trap. We've heard what to do and what to be. Jesus knows us. He knows the tendency of people to hear and hear and hear some more and and not do. To never connect with what's true with what we say and how we act and what we value. I've done it for decades in my life. He says we will be blessed if we do these things. And I love reminding people about how these phrases are constructed. Because you can read it a couple different ways. You can read it like this. You'll be blessed. Now you know these things. You'll be blessed if you do them. You can read it this way. Do these things so that you can get blessed. And by blessed, I mean get what I want. Right? Like, you'll be blessed if you do them is like dangling. Hey, whatever you think blessing looks like. Like you want more money. You want more connection. You want more sex, drugs, and rock and roll. You want more this. You want more that. You want more significance. Like... If you want all of that, do these things, and then you'll get those things. So we like militantly try to do stuff, you know, and we white knuckle it, you know, and we find it doesn't work. (laughs) And then we're mad at God because you trapped us, right? You trapped us into doing good things with bad motivation. (laughs) Somewhere in the back of our heads and in our hearts, if you're like me, we think this is a trick, a trap. This goes back to the very first lie that was whispered to our first parents. I love how our kids' Bible puts it. That, that the snake comes to Adam and Eve and he says, you know, maybe God doesn't really love you. Like, maybe he doesn't really want you to be happy. Maybe it's a trap. Do you ever think that? When you read texts like this? Like, maybe, maybe, maybe God really wants to change all the things that I want. Maybe he really wants to change even my underlying motivations 
for why I'm doing what it is that I'm doing. And I don't know about that. All this religious mumbo-jumbo about loving people kind of gets up under the ways we get our significance from all the other people. We think that we can be tricked into loving people. That if we serve others, it will come at our expense. Do you ever feel this? That if we love unconditionally, we'll just get walked all over. Here's a quick test to see how you're doing here at the end. Are you thinking about yourself or about someone else right now? Are you wondering if what I'm saying is a trap right now? Because part of us is afraid that if we follow Jesus, we will lose ourselves. Part of us is afraid that if we follow Jesus, we won't get everything we want. Exactly. Exactly. Jesus says if you want to save your life, you're going to have to lose it. Like if you want to discover the relationship that I have with my father, where I know exactly who I am, and I know exactly where I came from, and I know exactly where I'm going, and I can kneel down and take off clothes and wash camel poop off of some dummies. Like... If you want life, you're going to have to give it up. There's no trap. It's not a trap. It is exactly what Jesus told us about the way that he was crafting for us. And when we think it's a trap, and when we think that, well, maybe, well, what about the things I want? Well, what happens when you get what you want? It's never enough anyway, right? And we just keep spinning out. We just keep trying to clutch and control, and we just want more. And Jesus is sitting there just waiting for us. Just, hey, like, do you want to find your life? Do you want to find your real significance? Do you want to find meaning and purpose? Do you want to find peace? Do you want to find real blessing? Come follow me. He says, come, come pick up your cross and pick up your towel and pick up a foot that's attached to an image of God and serve And experience the blessing that comes from being like Jesus. Why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes. Let's pray. I want to ask you kind of a tough question as you're praying. And maybe I'm the only one in this room like this that needs to hear this. But I need to hear it. So you're going to hear it. Where are you holding out? in your heart. You know, we all have boundaries for God, right? We all have things that we're secretly worried that if he gets to that, it's going to just tear the whole thing down. If he gets to that relationship, if he gets to that motivation deep in our hearts, What's that for you? Is there any place in your heart that you've kept God out because you're afraid?
If you want to save your life, you're going to have to lose it. What does it look like for you to lose, to give up, to let go, to stop clutching? Maybe just spend a moment in the quiet of your heart and let go. Father, I, I need to let go myself and I need to lose my life to save it. And God, I think if me and my friends are being honest, there are places in our hearts and in our lives where we've kind of said this far and no further and we've kind of kept you out or we've been afraid that if you get to that, we'll lose our sense of self. God, would you show us that that thing that we're clinging to and that identity that we desperately clutch to and that we're just so trying to build, trying to advance, the stories that we're telling about that. God, would you reveal to us the way of your son, Jesus? That way back into your family that as your kids, as reflections of you, we have nothing to prove, nothing to gain, nothing to lose, nothing to control. God, help us follow your son Jesus on this way that he taught us. And God, I pray for all my friends here that whatever it looks like for them to, to kneel down and wash someone's feet. I, I don't know if there's feet that need to be washed in our community. Maybe there are. But would you give us a picture, give us a sense of what that service looks like for us. And instead of hyper-spiritualizing him washing their feet, that we could actually apply it to our lives and serve. God, show us. As we continue this conversation next week, too, show us how we can serve our city, how we can take that love into our community and advance your kingdom. God, we thank you so much for being with us and for bringing us together by your love and by your grace to be your people. Send us out. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for being with us today. Come on back for more next week. If you're giving an offering, there's a box in the back. Have a great week. We'll see you next time.